Brethren, the world is no closer to peace than in years past. In fact, armed conflicts are growing in numbers in this decade. There is a real possibility that a draft could be reinstituted to increase the number of military personnel if there are not enough volunteers. One of the most important issues that our younger brethren must face is the question of war and military service. The matter is a spiritually difficult one because it involves not only our intellect, but also the depth of our moral conscience. During World War II, all registrants were sent a questionnaire covering basic facts about their identification, their physical condition, their history, and also providing a check-off to indicate opposition to military service because of religious training or belief. Men marking the latter option received a DSS-47 form with 10 questions. These 10 questions are, Describe the nature of your belief, which is the basis of your claim. Explain how, when, and from whom or from what source you received the training and acquired the belief which is the basis of your claim. Give the name and present address of the individual upon whom you rely most for religious guidance. Under what circumstances, if any, do you believe in the use of force? Describe the actions and behavior in your life in which your opinion uh, most conspicuously demonstrates the consistency and depth of your religious convictions. Have you ever given public expression, written or oral, to the views herein expressed as the basis for your claim made above? If so, specify when and where. Have you ever been a member of any military organization or establishment? If so, state the name and address of the same and give reasons why you became a member. Describe your relationships with and activities in all organizations with which you are or have been affiliated other than religious or military. Are you a member of a religious sect or organization? Then lastly, describe carefully the creed or official statements of said religious sect or organization as it relates to participation in war. Now, if you didn't write down these questions completely, they will be available if you choose to contact our legal office to obtain information on this subject. But what does the Church of God teach? What does the Bible teach and reveal? What do you personally believe about war and military service? Because this is one of the vital components of your defense of your belief. The title of today's sermon is The War and Military Service Question. Does the Church of God take a stand on this issue? Well, our fundamental statement of a fundamental beliefs states under the heading Military Service and War. The living Church of God follows the teaching of Jesus and his apostles. Jesus said, But I say to you who hear, Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on one on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. That's quoted from Luke 6, verses 27 through 29. The Apostle James, brother of Jesus, continued teaching Jesus' message concerning violence and war in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. The Church of God has historically considered military service wrong for its members. Records show that from the American Revolution through the two world wars and subsequent police actions, members of the Church of God have consistently held to conscientious objection against military participation. That's our statement. The statement does not answer all the reasons for the church's stand, but it is a brief summary. Now, what do we know from church history? And I'll use some excerpts from the Heritage magazine on this subject because it, uh, the magazine presents these very clearly and accurately. It begins, no Christian, and that's from about 70 A.D. to 110 A.D., would voluntarily become a soldier after conversion. He would be deferred or deterred from doing so, not only by fear of contamination by idolatry, but also by a natural reluctance, and doubtless in many cases, by conscientious objection to using arms. There were certain features of military life which could not have failed to thrust themselves on a Christian's notice as presenting, to say the least, great ethical difficulty. The shedding of blood on the battlefield, the passing of death sentences by officers and the execution of them by common soldiers, the judicial infliction of scourging, torture, and crucifixion, the unconditional military oath, the average behavior of soldiers in peacetime and other idolatrous and offensive customs, all of these would constitute in combination an exceedingly powerful deterrent against any Christian joining the army on his own initiative. It goes on, the rise of Christianity led to a rapid growth of conscientious objection. According to A. Harnack, C.J. Cadeau, and G.J. Herring, the most eminent students of the problem. Few of any Christian served in the Roman army during the first century and a half A.D. And even in the third century, there were Christian conscientious objectors. Now that many early Christians accepted the injunction on the Sermon on the Mount quite literally is certain. And their attitude brought them into much the same kind of conflict with the Roman authorities which, which conscience objectors of our own time face in dealing with the military authority. Uh, G.C. MacGregor, the New Testament basis of pacifism, points out that until about the close of the third quarter of the second century, the attitude of the church was quite consistently pacifist. And Harnack's conclusion is that no Christian would become a soldier after baptism at least up to the time of Marcus Aurelius, 
say about A.D. 170. After that time, signs of compromise became increasingly evident, which is instructive. But the pacifist trend continues strong right up into the 4th century. But after this, what began to happen? Well, during its first three quarters or three centuries of existence, the Christian church was opposed to war and other forms of violence. Christian opposition to war early expanded into a denial of rightness of all course of action on the part of the civil power. Thus arose that form of conscience objection which has been designated as political non-participation. For many years, Christians regarded services in the army as inconsistent with their profession, and some held that for them all bloodshed, whether as soldiers or executioners, was unlawful. But during a considerable period after the death of Christ, it is certain that his followers believed he had forbidden war, and that in consequence of this belief, many of them refused to engage in it, whatever were the consequences, whether reproach or imprisonment or death. These facts are indisputable. It is easy, says a learned writer of the 17th century, to obscure the sun at midday as to deny the primitive Christian who renounced all revenge and war. Of all Christian writers of the second century, there is not one who notices the subject who does not hold to be unlawful for a Christian to bear arms. Now, where did the paths begin to diverge on this subject? Uh, and there was a diversion between original Christianity and false Christianity. From the National Peace Museum website, some legionnaires who converted to Christianity were able to reconcile warfare with their Christian belief, which is formalized in the just war theory. This option became more normal after Constantine made Christianity an official religion of the empire. In the 11th century, there was a further shift of opinion in the Latin Christian tradition with the Crusades strengthening the idea and acceptability of holy war. And objectors became a minority. And since that time, it's been very common for Christians, the Protestants and Catholics, to be a part of the armies of whatever nation they may live in. Now, what about the, that's the historical record. What about the biblical record? The question of military service does not involve the biblical record uh, as far as we want to address it before the word became flesh, before Jesus Christ walked this earth. Uh, the reason is I want to start after Christ walked this earth is that our society is not a church state government under God. So I'm not going to be addressing the Old Testament issues. Although we can learn some principles from God dealing with ancient Israel, we really need to begin with the time when Jesus Christ establishes the church of God. There is no biblical record of Jesus or his disciples fighting against the Romans or the Jews, no matter how oppressive they were, nor is there any account of them stirring up either Jews or Gentiles 
uh, to take up arms against occupying forces. The church of God fled to Pella when the Roman armies came to destroy Jerusalem. They did not organize to help fight against the Roman armies. We find instructive that when Jesus Christ was arrested and uh, crucified, they could, they could find no, uh, no accurate accusation valid against his uh, stirring up trouble uh, or uh, insurrection. In fact, Luke chapter 23, Luke 23, verse 1. Then the whole multitude of them arose and led him, that is Jesus the Christ, to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar saying that he himself is Christ, a king. But they were accusing him of, of rabble-rousing and trying to stir up insurrection. But then Pilate asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said, It is as you say. But Pilate's conclusion was this, I find no fault in him, in the man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man man was a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he had belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. And we go to verse 12. That very day, Pilate and Herod became friends with each other, or previously they had been at enmity with each other. And then Pilate, when he had called neither the uh, together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people. And indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in him, and no fault in this man concerning those things which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed nothing deserving of death has been done by him. So we find that Jesus Christ certainly was not guilty of forming any armed rebellion or insurrection against either Judea or Rome. So the issue is this, I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to them at the feast. And they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. And so Pilate, therefore wishing to release Jesus, called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. So Barabbas was incited and found guilty of his murder and revolt. But the disciples were not involved with Barabbas, and Jesus was not involved with him. Uh, We find in Acts chapter 5, there's an account of others who rebelled. In the book of Acts chapter 5, we find here, beginning in verse 28, uh, the apostles were arrested, they were accused of 
teaching in Christ's name, and, and they said, the authorities, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter said, and the other apostles answered, and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Where, where the laws of man and the laws of God conflict, we are to follow God first. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on the tree. And him God exalted to be the, at, to his right hand, to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And they talked about how they were witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Uh, well, they plotted, they were furious, they plotted to kill them. And one of the councils stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. And Gamaliel commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while and said to them, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, a Theudas rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him, and he was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. And this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. And he also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now I say to you, keep away from these men, and let them alone, for if this plan or this work of men is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And then in Acts 21, there's a reference to the Egyptian. Again, another individual who they, mistake, they had mistaken Paul for. Uh, but in all these accounts, the, the disciple of Jesus Christ were not involved in these rebellions. They were not associated with Judas or Theudas or the Egyptian or Barabbas, that Christ and his disciples follow a different spirit, a different uh, teaching and approach to, to life and to society. When we think in terms of what did Christ teach his disciples and what spirit and attitude did God expect them to follow, we find it very clear. In Matthew 19, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, he said to uh, excuse me, verse 19, uh, Matthew 19, excuse me, in verse 17. So he said to him, why do you call me good, this young man? came to Christ. No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself." The young man said to him, All these things that I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? 
Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So we find that it is the commandments that God wants us to follow because they reflect uh, his law of love, love toward humankind, and love toward God. We mentioned back in uh, earlier in the history of conscience objection as far as the Christian church, the reference made to the uh, Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. And notice, these are the attitudes that come from the very nature of God. And how do these fit with serving in armies and war? Let's go through a few of them. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. So whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then right on the the uh, edge of this, he mentions, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Now, murder is the taking of another person's life. But Christ magnifies that. He, he says, even more important, I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother, which is, again, the spirit of murder, without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, you, know, you fool, uh, shall be in danger of the uh, council. Whoever says uh, fool, again, this intense hatred is it's, uh, mentioned by this word shall be in danger of Gehenna fire. And so anger and hatred is the spirit of murder. And Christ said, not just don't murder, but do not hate and do not have this intense and abiding hatred that would lead to the lake of fire. We find other admonitions. Again, think in terms of, of a Christian's life and nature. In Matthew 5, verse 1, just earlier, and think in terms of this in coinc- uh, coinciding with serving in the military. Uh, here in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, a humble, uh, contrite spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's what God 
taught and teaches. Now, even with God's Spirit, can we exude these kinds of attitudes while participating in the armed services? Now, can we learn to, to not hate, but to, to love and to have mercy and kindness in this type of uh, environment? Can we observe the Sabbath? Can we observe the holy days? Uh, we had, I had one example of an individual that I had known years ago. And when he and his wife were first married, he was in special services as far as in the, uh, the military. And there was a time period when his wife told him, you know, you have changed. You're not the man I married. And he said, what do you mean? He said, or she said to him, you have become cold and you have become calloused. Instead of being a, a loving husband, what he had been taught to do in the military was to kill whenever commanded to kill uh, in, in battle, in duty. And he realized, began to realize, yes, you know, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I'm not loving my wife as I should. And so eventually he got out of the military because he realized that they, they were trained to kill without question. Uh, they, were, they were trained in that way. And his conscience became callous. And he no longer was following the precepts here in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. In Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You should obey it in its lusts. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. You are not under law, but under grace. What then shall we sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. Well, we know what Christ taught, you know, that if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And Paul says, certainly not. Or as in the old King James Version, God forbid. Do you not know to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. And so, uh, you know, how can we, you know, conscientiously enter a military organization that does not teach God's laws? In fact, uh, so often goes against those same laws and principles and have the constant, we become slaves. And here God, and through the Apostle Paul, talked about that we want to be slaves to righteousness as opposed to slaves uh, of, of uh, sin leading to death. Another question, would we want to fight to thwart God's judgment? Let's turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23 and verse 29. Jesus Christ is 
correcting the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. And he goes on to correct them more severely. But notice what he says in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children to gather as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall, uh, uh, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there was a great punishment that God was going to wreak out on Jerusalem because of their sins, their murderous attitudes, and their rebellion against God's people and his prophets. Uh, if we were serving in the military at that point, would we try to thwart God's judgment? You know, God does have judgments. Uh, we have to make sure we're not fighting against God's punishment and correction on peoples and nations. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that the hard way. Daniel chapter 4. And he learned a very vital lesson about God and, and God's judgments and intervention in nations. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord, the, my, the king. Uh, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. They shall make you eat grass like an oxen. And then you shall, uh, they shall wet you with dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and notice, and gives it to whomever he chooses. Now notice verse 34. So, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Uh, again, notice his understanding. He began to learn the lesson. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So he learned that God is in, the char in charge of the world events earlier in Daniel, the rise and fall of kingdoms. Uh, so again, would God's people uh, try, try to fight for one kingdom against another kingdom to uh, stop it from fulfilling God's will and purpose? Uh, no, that would not be the way that God would want us to do. We don't want to thwart God's judgment. Now, there are scriptures in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that when our nation sins, when the nations of Israel sin, 
there are certain punishments and certain consequences. And again, that's God's judgment. And again, as Christians, we are to follow God's will and, and pray that his will be done for the sake of, of humanity, not just Israel. In John chapter 18, in the book of John chapter 18, is this the time for God's people to be involved in military action? Well, John chapter 18, verse 29. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If he were not an evildoer, we, we would not have delivered him to you. And Pilate said to them, You take him and judge him according to your law. And therefore the Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. And then Pilate entered the praetorium against uh, again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Are you uh, speaking for yourself about this? Or did others tell you concerning this? Or me, And Pilate said, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world, this present age. And notice, he said, If my kingdom were of this world, this present age, my servants would fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. And I, uh, but now my kingdom is not from here. So uh, Jesus Christ plainly, plainly stated uh, that this was not the time for him to take his servants and to fight against all of the injustices and evils of the world. He had a different purpose in coming and dying for our sins. And uh, another place he talks about that he could call up legions of angels. He had that authority. And that no one has authority except, again, by God's permission. So, again, God's servants will fight, but when? Not in this present time, but when Jesus returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, Notice Psalm 149. In Psalm 149, in verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. Uh, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them that is written the judgment And this honor have all the saints. But when does this happen? Not in this present age. It happens when Jesus Christ returns as King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, Revelation 19. Revelation, again, 19. Let's begin in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened. 
behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him is called Faithful and true, and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. And he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe a name written and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's coming because nations are at war. They are destroying the earth, destroying themselves. Unless God would intervene, there would no flesh be saved alive. And so when Christ returns, that's when he will set up his kingdom, beginning with the millennial reign of Christ. And that's when the servants will, be get, fully, will get fully involved in society in every form and fashion. And as glorified saints of God, we will have the loving character and authority to wage a, a just war fully in righteousness with the right spirit and the right attitude. Now, what do you personally believe about war and military service? And this is, in a sense, the crux of the, the issue because the title is conscientious objection. That means what would your conscience and your convictions allow you to do uh, let's go to Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Acts 5, verse 29. Again, Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. Uh, what, again, uh, could you fully obey God rather than man? Could you fully obey God while serving in the armed services? Now, here is an oath that you are to take if you are in the services. I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, that I will obey the orders of the President of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice, uh, so help me God. So essentially, you're, you're giving yourself under, fully under the authority of not the Bible, and not of God, and not of his servants, but under the military and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. Now, when we were preparing for baptism... We understood that our allegiance was fully to God first, then to family, and then to nation, as long as there was harmony uh, before God in what was required. Uh, Luke chapter 14. This is scripture that we cover before baptism. It's a very powerful group of scriptures. But in verse 26, and if anyone come to me, that is to Jesus the Christ, and does not hate or love less by comparison. You know, love God more 
Then his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. So that is very clear that we are to love God with all of our hearts and all of our beings. And that is our allegiance and our oath to God in that sense. You know, a soldier was asked, what was your experience after you enlisted? Well, pretty quickly, this is what he said, pretty quickly after I got in, I started to see inconsistencies between how the military was talked about in such glorified ways when I was growing up and then how it was acted, how it was acted out in training. Training was very desensitizing. We screamed slogans like, kill them all. Let God sort them out. We watched videos with bombs being dropped on Middle Eastern villages with rock and roll music in the background. People really started to celebrate death and destruction. And that definitely didn't match up to what I'd expected. I told myself that I was wanting or willing to kill if necessary, but that wasn't the same as celebrating it. Well, how does that fit in with putting God first in the Sermon on the Mount? And God saying, love your neighbors as yourself. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Again, that doesn't fit that experience. James chapter 5, verse 17. James 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produces fruit. So, again, here, here is a, an individual who had faith. And brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, what are we saying? Uh, basically, the attitude of, of the soldier is to train to kill for the benefit of the, his country or his nation. And here we're talking about the, in a godly way, we want to turn sinners, you know, those who would murder, those who would kill, those who would go against God's way. We would want to turn them back from those things. And then if we do that, we could save someone from death and cover a multitude of sins. So the attitude and experience as a Christian is fully different than that of this soldier. So again, was this experience of the soldier in harmony with the instructions of Jesus Christ? Uh, would the inability to observe the Sabbath and holy days be in harmony with the will of God? Their Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. And the biblical record is he and his apostles and, and the, the original Christians observed the Sabbath and the holy days. So would being in the military where that would be very much difficult, if not impossible, be in harmony with God's mind and will? Could you compromise God's laws and principles in faith with clear conscience? Now, could you learn to hate your enemy enough that you could kill them and go to battle with them? The question is not what your 
church teaches or what your minister or friends believe, but about what you personally believe and practice. For example, if you compromise on the Sabbath and you cave in on other laws of God, then you would not have a problem with continuing to do so with the armed services because you could compromise with God's law there as well. But otherwise, if you, uh, you're, you're, you know, what you're doing is you're play-acting in regard to the Bible. So under these circumstances, if, again, you're not following God's way of life now, the military won't believe you're sincere. They're not going to believe that your conscience uh, is against serving in the military. And nor could your, the church prove your sincerity. At that point, you would be on your own. So ultimately, what are you personally willing to face for your beliefs? If you're a man, and of course later it, uh, we, women may be involved as well, but in this case, let's stick with the men. If you are a man, you could be accused of a lack of masculinity and cowardice. You could be accused of being willing to sacrifice your wife and children for your beliefs. They'd make you feel horrible about that. Other consequences, family and friends would disapprove of you, that you are unpatriotic and an embarrassment to them. You know, after all, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews serve. Are you calling them unfaithful to God? These are some of the the things you might face. Would you be willing to lose your job and take on a low-paying service one? We had many of our young men have to go through that. Uh, that they were allowed to uh, not be in the military, but they were penalized for a certain amount of time uh, taking a very low-paying service job and having to postpone sometimes family and marriage and and so forth. Will you be willing to be physically and verbally attacked? Would you be willing to go to prison? We had one young man, I believe in the eastern Oregon area, that I visited after he just got out of prison. The reason he was there was not because of any criminal action, but he conscientiously believed that he should not serve in the military because of murder going against God's commandments. But he did not have a church to back him. And because it was his own personal beliefs, the judges ruled against him. And so he served a a several-year sentence for his conscience uh, saying that I cannot uh, be trained to murder or kill another human being, and he was willing to go to prison for that. Uh, Ultimately, are you willing to die for your beliefs? Revelation talks about individuals who loved not their lives unto death. So these are questions of of conscience. What do you truly believe in your mind and heart? Uh, What is is your your being? Uh, Describe your beliefs. You know, there are three main issues involved in deciding about our involvement in war and military service. What does the church of God teach? That's vital. Secondly, what does the Bible reveal? And that's even more important. And then thirdly, which is very critical, what do we personally believe about war and military service? Do we love our nation? Of course we love our nation. But also, don't we love all humanity? You know, God is not willing that any should perish, 
but that all should come to repentance. In 6,000 years, armies have not brought an end to war, nor ushered in long-lasting peace. Well, why not? Let's turn to James chapter 4. I've heard years ago that, you know, it wouldn't make sense if Christians in one nation would go to war and fight Christians in another nation if they're all willing to, to fight. And so, uh, you know, if, if Christians in America went to war with some other nation uh, in the perhaps the Orient or in Europe, uh, how could one Christian fight against another Christian? And again, armies have not brought an end to war. And God is the author of, of civilizations rising and falling because of punishment and discipline for sin. But what is the nature of war? James 4, verse 1. You know, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You, you lust, you don't have, you murder and you covet, you cannot obtain, you fight and you war, and yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. So basically it's that carnal mind uh, that causes wars, following the carnal or carnality of our desires. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of this world makes himself an enemy of God because the world is going contrary to God's way of life. There's a spirit in the sons of disobedience, a, a spirit realm that influences this carnal world. And it is against God. So if you want to be fully involved with society, this present generation, then you're really making yourself an enemy to God and his kingdom and ways. Uh, do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit which dwells in us yearns jealousy? But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so there, there has to be this, this change in our human nature. We need to draw close to God, not, not closer to the world and its ways, and its rebellions, and its wars, uh, but to conquer over uh, human nature. That is happening. Hebrews chapter 8, a true Christian is under a new covenant with God. In Hebrews chapter 8, and verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, or those days, says the Eternal. I will put my laws in their minds. The laws of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know, these are the kind of laws that will be written in our, our minds, our intellect, and write them on their hearts, our conscience, our, our belief, our way of doing. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. 
for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So again, as we uh, change, as God changes us, calls us, and we are truly following original Christianity, the one that Jesus Christ established, then our very natures, our very human natures, uh, which uh, lead to the carnal way to war and, and all sorts of evils, is being changed. And we're conquering over those attitudes and uh, ways of life. And so we must draw close to God, acknowledging the Father and Jesus Christ as the sovereign rulers of all that exists and yielding to their loving will and authority. Again, known as Isaiah 9. You know, our King is Jesus Christ. You know, our Lord, our boss is Jesus Christ. And, and God the Father is, is all in all, above all, and through all. And Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. Now that is our God. He'll be called Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, and notice, and peace, there will be no end. How can that be? In 6,000 years of human history, and our human governments have not brought peace. It's been a history of war all in those generations. Uh, one writer mentioned that, that uh, the history of mankind is one either of recovering from war, warring, or preparing for war. That's been our history. But God's way is different. When he begins to establish his kingdom, again, there will be peace and there will be no end of that peace. And upon his throne, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. And the zeal of the eternal of hosts will perform this. Now, true Christians understand and believe these to be the only workable solutions. To act on these solutions, that is doing it God's way and not the way of the world, but to do it God's way requires faith. You believe God that what he said is true. and What he promises, he will perform. And so it requires faith. It requires courage to go against uh, what the world would desire you to do and have. And it requires sacrifice. It is not easy to be a Christian. And there are certain times of crises and certain obligations that you have to face with the spirit of the living God, of Jesus Christ living in you. And to these ends, we are called now to prepare not to fight the battles of the world. We are called now to prepare to rule with Christ, fight a spiritual battle, and then eventually be used to bring about God's kingdom to rule with Christ. So that is the, those are the issues of war and military service. So brethren, make sure that you have a clean, pure, righteous conscience before your God in these matters.